we have to find out a way to engage, not in cheap conversations and kumbaya singing sessions, but some, we have to gain and acquire some moral courage and try to build common ground based on not cheap talk and expectation, but real action, because the culture of despair and culture of hopelessness, this will absolutely destroy us. That's Abdullah Antepli, the first imam and chief representative of Muslim affairs at Duke University. In this episode, we hear Antepli talk with Daniil Hartman, an Orthodox rabbi and president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, about the long-standing and seemingly intractable conflict between Israel and Palestine. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In today's special episode of the Common Ground Podcast, we're going to play for you a dialogue held at Grand Valley State University on September 8th, 2016, between two internationally renowned interfaith leaders, Abdullah Antepli, Imam and Chief Representative of Muslim Affairs at Duke University, and Daniil Hartman, Orthodox Rabbi, President of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, and author of Putting God Second, How to Save Religion from Itself hosted collaboratively by the Howenstein Center and the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, the dialogue took up one of the most challenging questions facing the international community. Might Israelis and Palestinians be able to find sufficient common ground to resolve their decades-old conflict? Antepli and Hartman pursue this question honestly and admit some of their reservations. At least they call attention to the many obstacles that need to be surmounted before either side could even glimpse some possible common ground and common purpose. Nevertheless, the conversation was civil, principled, and for these reasons, deeply instructive. Stay tuned to hear that discussion, co-hosted by the Howenstein Center and the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. To learn more about that terrific institute, visit gvsu.edu forward slash interfaith. Now on to the episode. Thanks for listening to Common Ground. Thank you very much for this wonderful introduction. Thank you, Grand Rapids. This is my first visit to this beautiful city. I arrived late last night, and so far have seen only three and a half minute sunshine. I'm hoping <laughs> I will not leave this city without seeing some sufficient sunshine. Otherwise, I will always remember it as a gloomy, beautiful green city. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum, and uh, peace and blessings to all of you. It's absolutely a pleasure and honor to be here in this easy political topic to deal with. But before we jump into the difficult um, struggles of Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Israel-Palestine, uh, if you don't know yet, this coming Monday is the Eid al-Adha, one of the two major festivals of the Muslim calendar. It's almost like a Muslim Christmas. It's almost like a Muslim Yom Kippur. Um, it's a good time to visit your Muslim friends, especially uh, how much Muslims are a beloved minority in America these days and how lovely conversations are run. Um, many Muslims, their eat joy has been bittered by many chatters of presidential elections and the uh, uh, coincidental uh, Eid al-Adha coinciding with almost like 9-11, 15th anniversary of this heinous, treacherous act. Unfortunately, has been souring. So if you have Muslim friends, it's a good time to check in with them join in their celebration of Eid al-Adha 
and enjoy an amazing food that you will never forget. Um, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here, and I'm tickled by this Common Ground initiative. Uh, I have to say, as a Blue Devil Imam, I'm from Duke University, and my university mascot is Blue Devil. I am the only Imam that I know of who is allowed to pray praise for the devils, only the Blue Devil ones. <laughs> and for course, Common Ground people, if you want to have a real challenge, uh, come and try this Common Ground between Duke and the Tar Heel fans. See if there is any common ground is out there. Um, I have to say before my humble remarks, I am not a Palestinian. I'm a Turkish American Muslim. And of course, I only speak for myself, but especially I don't speak on behalf of Palestinians who has been going through decades long conflict and their suffering, their angst, and their living situation. It would be absolutely um, dishonest on me to even pretend that as if I am speaking on behalf of them or being their voice and face in any capacity. That's absolutely not the case. But as a Turkish-American Muslim, who um, both my adopted homeland, Turkey and the United States, and my Islam, my religion, is deeply embedded in this problem. You know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not the only one, only political problem or tragedy that Muslims are going through. And it's not the worst one. Quite honestly, there are many Muslims in many different parts of the world. Physical conditions are a lot worse than West Bank, Gaza even, if you can imagine. But Muslims cry in a very special way to Palestinian suffering. Because this political conflict over time, because of Jerusalem, because of uh, the holy sites uh, in Israel-Palestine, it has gained incredible amount of religious currency. It captured the religious imagination of many Muslims around the world that when it comes to Palestinian suffering, Muslims cry in a special tone. And it's very important and very special. So I guess I should be, I should be absolutely given the moral legitimacy to say a few things about this problem, which has shaped my Islam, my multiple identities, and my work as an imam in the United States. <clears throat> the, such, the topic that we are going to discuss, common, uh, can we find a common ground? suggests that we should find a common ground. It suggests that we, it's getting a common ground is absolutely an important aspect for any civil society, for any peaceful society. In order to achieve harmony and peace, common ground is a good thing that we should be, we should be arriving. Uh, but let me start with the good news. The good news is whatever we are trying to find the common ground for Israel-Palestine, it's not working. We have enough evidence to be convinced. We have enough evidence to basically come to terms and be humble enough to say whatever we are trying to achieve the common ground, the political attempts, military attempts, intellectual and theological and religious attempts, it's not working. I'm only saying this half humorously. If you invite consultants from the McKenzie or any consultancy company to come and tell us and evaluate our ability to achieve common ground, they will assess what we have done as pro-Palestinians and pro-Israelis, whatever you want to say. And in, for the lack of a better term, I hate labels. In political terms, I consider myself as pro-Palestinian two-statist. That's where I, politically where I am. I would like to just put it out there as well. It's not working. Whatever we are trying, 
the attempts that we are making in any pr pr prospective way, uh, whichever camp, that political camp that we belong to, it's not yielding any results. But I am not here to tell you how bad the situation is. I am assuming you already know. I am assuming that in, at its best, the common ground is almost as tiny as an almond, or at its worst, bloodshed, hate, conflict, rising anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on all fronts, I can tell you story after story how the situation between Israeli-Palestinian conflict or uh, between pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian uh, camps and the, in their understanding of one another, etc. But I'm going to save that depressive talk, assuming that you agree with me that we haven't had much success. These Mackenzie scholars who would uh, evaluate our achievements in achieving uh, common ground will come back to us uh, and say us, you have enough evidence to basically change the course of action. Whatever you are trying, it's not working. You have to try, you have to try something different. In the initial few minutes of my uh, remarks, I would like to at least bring myself and inviting you to be with me to a level of honesty. Why is it not working? What are some, what are some of the common threats, common actions on all parts of this political conflict that we have been doing all the time and keep doing it and expecting a different results. In the words of Einstein, that means we are somewhat insane. Like if you keep trying the same thing and expecting a different results, that means we are not going to produce any different results. One of the ways in which we are keep failing in creating common ground, one of the big hindrance and obstacle and mistake that we have been doing is the way in which who are involved or attached and uh, trying to understand this conflict the way we understand about our camp, the sources of information that we receive about our political affiliation is so homogeneous, often so biased, uh, and worse so when we try to understand the other side, that our sources of information, whatever we appeal to, whatever we are achieving and receiving a source of information, it is not helping us. It is a major hindrance and obstacle in achieving a common ground, the divide is so big that you cannot even bridge. In order to bridge the Israeli-Palestinian conflict divide in many places, you have to first bring people close enough that you can actually build a bridge. And one of the main obstacles that whatever sources of information, written, visual, theological, political, educational information we are receiving about our version of the story, our narrative, and especially about the narrative of the other people, it's not working. It is only making things worse. It increases polarization. It divides us any further. And it allows the messages of hate and the bias and stereotype go free and unchallenged in our communities. The second obstacle, I will only mention three, four in each category, and we are only given 20 minutes to basically pull the common ground. One, to me, a common mistake that we do, which prevents us to create the necessary common ground for people like uh, Rabbi Hartman and myself. We have many political disagreements, and some of the, which of them are uh, irreconcilable. We simply look at things in a very different way. But because of the kind of work that we do, because of the kind of education that we have taken on to ourselves, at least despite those differences, we have a common ground big enough healthy enough, functional enough, that we can actually have a conversation with. In addition to the educational and source of information crisis, 
which is preventing us from achieving a common ground. The second thing that we do as a mistake, and we do this all the time, the different parts of the aisle, people from, belong to different political camps, we keep investing in each other's renegades. We keep investing, we keep extending a microphone to people who in their own communities are at its best controversial, at its best marginal, at its worst either self-hating, uh, or people who have issues about their own background, their faith, their political persuasion, and they are so happy to go to the other side, other, uh, other side of the aisle, and basically uh, validate the kind of monstrous image that already exists in the hearts and minds of those people about the other. You know what this does, if you keep investing, if for many, many, uh, unfortunately, people who are on the uh, pro-Palestinian side, if you only invest in those Jews and invite them to speak, are the ones who in many ways are, because of who they are and what they say is incredibly problematic. Uh, similarly, if you are on the pro-Israeli camp and if the only Muslims that you're inviting into your synagogues or uh, pro-Israeli rallies, only Muslims show up and speak there are the people who are either ex-Muslims or self-hating Muslims. Uh, you know what it does? Not only it validates the kind of toxic message that already exists, it gives the message to the other side. It gives an incredibly uh, trust-destroying, toxic, poisonous message that the, these people, oh, your camp is investing in my enemies, and I will do everything I can to invest in your enemies. And there is no way we will be able to achieve a common ground in absolute sense uh, if we continue to engage in, with this kind of practices. And there is this conflict between Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a conflict of many asymmetries, many imbalances, many, um, like in this case, Rabbi Hartman is an Israeli, I am not. Here's an asymmetry right there. Uh, and I hope this conversation will continue. Hopefully, there, are, there will be Palestinian speakers who will come and maybe represent the Palestinian voices as well. But to me, one of the main asymmetry, not only military power and economic power, those are quite obvious, but one of the biggest asymmetry is Israel is a reality, but Palestine is not. So when you are trying to find a common ground, you are trying to find a common ground between a reality and a concept, an aspiration, a dream which has yet to be fulfilled. This is very important to, it requires a lot of energy and education to understand that there are so many asymmetries, but one of the fun most fundamental asymmetries, Israel as a homeland to Jewish people. After 2,000 years of longing to be in the land that where they have incredibly deep, to me beautiful, spiritually rich, religious, biblical connection, uh, that has become a success story. I am not discussing how it happened, how it could have happened, and what happened along the way. But it's a reality. Israel is a reality. It's a thriving country with many, many success that uh, many Israelis have every right to be proud of. Resurrecting a completely dead religion. Re I'm sorry, the language, which wasn't spoken for many, many hundred years, and having a somewhat viable economy, etc. But whereas Palestine and Palestinians, it is not. It is not a reality. It is a, it is a, it is a concept. It's an aspiration. It is 
at its best a dream, an unfulfilled one, so that when we make a comparison, when we make expectations, when we make demands of each other to basically force ourselves uh, to create a common ground, the kind of expectations and demands that you would expect from the Israeli side cannot be the similar one, cannot be the expectation. And the, if any common ground attempt that we are going to create, any common ground and hope attempt that we are going to create, it has to absolutely, the situation has gotten so bad and much from gotten from bad to worse and even ugly that any common ground attempt that for moving forward for the future, it has to be based on no cheap talks, but absolutely action. If you are going to create a hope, if you are going to create some sort of a um, light in the midst of this darkness and the culture of despair, our actions should speak much louder than our words. And in this case, I am hoping, I love when I go to Yom Kippur services, I learned this from Rabbi Hartman. He has a beautiful analogy. When you go to Yom Kippur services to ask forgiveness and beat your chest, he beautifully says, no one goes and beats the uh, person next to each other. <laughs> no one says you should be asking forgiveness for this one and you should, you should be asking for this one. Quite honestly, I am absolutely tired of seeing these gray-haired children. How many of you have children and how many of you were sitting in a living room peacefully and then a fight breaks up in the, in the children's living room? And you go up and ask, I saw this many, many times, the kids are fighting. And when you ask what happened, almost 90% of the time, one of them will say, everything started when she hit me back. <laughs> like most of the conversations of our ability to find a solution or create a common ground it all focuses on what the other side needs to do, what other side has done wrong, what other side has to come to term with, the kind of litmus test we, that we, we impose on one another. That's exactly why it is preventing us from achieving common ground, that we should do everything we can to not only rely on self, heavy self-criticism, brutal self-criticism self of our camp, our political ideological persuasions, our religions, but also we have to develop not just polyanistic, not uh, uh, unreasonable hopes and expectations, but concrete. I will give you an example. When I was doing the MLI program in the Shalom Hartman, a lot of people knew that by going to an Israeli Zionist organization to learn Judaism and Zionism, we will be in our own community criticized. And that was an understatement. The harshness of criticism, many of them has very legitimate points, Many of them is emotional reaction, et cetera. But a lot of people knew we were using a lot of internal Muslim equity by going to Israel and trying to learn uh, Judaism, Zionism, the way the Jews, the way the Israelis, the way the Zionists themselves understand the world, try to see the world through their own eyes. And a lot of my participants said, New York is the biggest Jewish city in the world. Why don't we do this in the United States? Why do we have to go to Israel? and basically get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. And I insisted, absolutely not. It's not enough if you want to create a common ground, which only you can do if you create a goodwill on the part of the other side. You have to act. It's not enough to say, I am a, a two-status. It's not enough to say 
that I believe in the legitimacy of the state of Israel. It's not enough to say I accepted, I accepted legitimacy and the existence of the state of Israel as long as there's a, a, a functional, prosperous Palestinian state. But it's not enough, it's all talk. If you want to convince the other side, things have gone so bad, in order to create a common ground, we have to go there. We have to go there and show in action that our two status position, it's not a cheap political position. Our two status position, if you are a two status like me, it's at least minimally, ethically, morally, it's required of us as much as you want your Palestinian state, as much as you pray for it, which I do five times a day, for an independent Palestinian state where the rights and the, and the every opportunity is given to these Palestinians, especially after they suffered for so many decades. But as I want that for Palestinians, if you are a true, honest, ethical, moral two-status, there are two states in the sentence. You should also respect at least and honor and acknowledge for the existence and the legitimacy of the other side of the story. That we have to find out a way to engage, not in cheap conversations and kumbaya singing sessions, but some, we have to gain and acquire some moral courage and try to build common ground based on not cheap talk and expectation, but real action, because the culture of despair and culture of hopelessness, this will absolutely destroy us. If anybody thinks, if anybody from the pro-Israeli camp, even remotely thinking that without a prosperous, successful, independent Palestinian state next to Israel, that there will ever be peace there, you are daydreaming, you are absolutely in a delusional and denial psychology that you should see a shrink. <laughs> and if anybody thinks in my camp, I, I hate to use these by the polarizing terms, but for the lack of a better term, that somehow, uh, uh, somehow uh, the, the Israel will disappear, somehow uh, this will go away, uh, somehow uh, whatever utopian, this will all be one Palestinian state. Again, that means you are either smoking something you shouldn't, or uh, you are not necessarily really paying attention to the things on the ground. I am hoping and praying, I already used my time generously, which I'm hoping I will make a few more points that I listed to myself in the Q&A session. Where we are screams in volumes to change the course. Where we are forcing anybody and everybody on all camps that the things that we have trying and keep doing is making things worse. And to expect that somehow it will get better on its own is nothing but delusional. We need prophetic voices within our communities, incredibly credible representative voices in our own communities, engage in self-critical, self-examining, self-evaluating mode and find out the way to the, their counterparts on the other camp and engage with action and never give up and never give into the culture of despair and hopelessness. Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as hopeless as it is, it's not the worst conflict of the world. The kind of problems that Christians and Jews were facing for 2,000 years. If you look to Christian anti-Semitism and its disappearance in many parts of the world, Baruch Hashem, Alhamdulillah, it's incredible. In one person's lifetime, we went from Holocaust, where six million innocent Jews were turned into ashes, 
to Jews becoming a beloved minority in most part of the Western world. It's incredible. But if you look what people went against, what were the obstacles, what was the size and the problems, etc., it is not any less than what we are facing between Jews and Muslims or Israelis and Palestinians or Israeli-Palestinian conflict. As many problems of the past have been solved, as many wounds of the political problems of the past has been healed, this could also be healed. Let's not give up and educate ourselves, diversify our sources of information, do not invest in the voices of hate and exclusion, and try to find out a way to use some internal equity and reach the, on the other side and create the common ground required to heal this toxic political message. Thank you and God bless you. Good evening. Like Abdullah, and like the majority of Israelis, I dream for a time when I will live side by side with the Palestinian state in peace and security. While it's not the biggest land in the world, One of the first lessons I was ever taught was a Mishnah, a rabbinic text, that if two people are holding on to a garment, and this one says it's all mine, and this one says it's all mine, what should you do? Early rabbinic rulings stated that you should fight over it, under the belief that the one who really owned it, because if, if this one says it's mine and this one says it's mine, this one says I found it first, this one said I found it first, it, it probably belongs to somebody. And you, with the conviction of your self-righteousness, the one who, who really owns it will prevail. But that's not what our rabbis ruled. Our rabbis ruled that if two people claim a garment, this one says, I found it. This one says, I found it. This says, it's all mine. And this one says, it's all mine. Rabbinic law states that you have to divide it. Without getting into any complex analysis over who came first, who's on second. Is there a Palestinian people? Is there not? Do the Jewish people have a right? Do they not? We have two people claiming one space. And for me, the solution is very simple. The common ground is to divide it. And it can be divided. But if that seems so reasonable and so self-evident, why is it that that's not being implemented in our lifetime? Do you think we enjoy killing each other? Do you think we enjoy assaulting each other? Why is it that this process, which seems so self-evident, is not happening? Now, in the West, you look at it, and you say, oh, come on. And you see the irrationality of it. 
And you say, listen, we'll solve it for you. Why can't you just be like the United States and Canada? <laughs> I used to be able to say the United States and Mexico, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Actually, you, you'll have a wall too, you know. <laughs> okay, relax. You have to realize the great joy that I have. I know it's a perverse joy, but it's a joy nonetheless. Because my whole life, I moved to Israel when I was 13. And I come back to the United States so often, and I'm an American citizen, and I love the United States. I love the United States, and I believe that the world is a better world because of the United States. And I believe that all the forces for good in the world owe the United States much of their success. Um, and I love the fact that I am an American citizen. And so much of my life, um, I was always so envious of the American political system. <laughs> I must tell you, Israel's not looking so bad. <laughs> What's happening? In my remarks, I'd like to focus on what's making good people, decent people, work against finding a common ground. And then like my friend Abdullah and his beautiful remarks, I'd like to suggest two practical things that Israelis and Palestinians must begin to do. To understand the reality today in the Middle East, it's not first and, first and foremost religion. And it's not even any more first and foremost military or political positions or analyses. <coughs> to understand what is dictating and shaping the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to connect to the profound impact that fear is having. Fear is very often a very appropriate emotion. There is what to be fearful of. For there are people who want to kill others. There are people who want to kill me, who want to kill my children, who want to kill my grandchildren, who want to kill my people. And while I am speaking as an Israeli, much of what I say tonight, in particular this emotion of fear, is applicable equally to the experience of Palestinians. And I am not getting involved or talking at all about fault. I'm just merely talking about that reality. Now, as you modify your vision in order to protect yourself, the tragedy of fear is that it very rarely stops there. Fear has a life of its own, which begins to transform you. As you modify your vision and look after your own self-interests, more often than not, you begin to vilify the person who is causing you to be fearful. And that, too, often makes sense. I have no love as a Jew 
nor am I commanded to love as a Jew a person who wants to kill me and my children. I don't love the Palestinian terrorist who was pressing a plunger to explode a vest 10 yards from my two children. And the vest did not, and, the, and it shorted. I have no love for him. Please remember, I'm a Jew. I'm not a Christian. The vilification of he or she who wants to kill me and to do harm to me is for me a religious duty. Because I can't, if I want to vilify the action, if I want to reject that as a legitimate response, the moral condemnation which is associated with vilification is profoundly appropriate. I live in a neighborhood filled with terrorists. And I have to call them that. And I have to name them as such. But the problem with this vision, vision modification is that as I begin to look at myself, and as I begin to vilify the person who means me and my children and grandchildren harm, the tragedy of that process is that, again, it rarely stops there. Not merely do I begin to vilify the, the person specifically who is coming to attack me. I begin to vilify those who are like them, those who belong to their group, those who belong to their faith, those who belong to their race, those who are a part of their political system or political party or political ideology. The tragedy of fear is that it's contagious. Not merely contagious to other people, but it's contagious in your soul. And it very rarely has the precision that it deserves. And now all of a sudden, as a result of that fear, I don't only yearn to protect myself. And I don't only feel profound anger at those people who want to kill me. Now all of a sudden, I generalize. And I hate and I vilify a total people. I hate and vilify a total religious system. Part of the silly debate in North America and I apologize for calling it silly, about whether there is such a thing as Muslim terror, is that we are profoundly frightened of the contagious nature of that vilification. But of course there's Muslim terror. There are individuals who want to kill people as a result of their faith. But what we're frightened of are all Muslims terrorists. Can you... If you state the term Muslim terrorist, are you designating Islam as a terrorist religion? It's not in the term. What we're frightened of is us, because that's what we do. Are all Palestinians terrorists? Do all Palestinians want to kill my children? While there are some who do, 
is that the definition of everybody who I'm going to encounter in my neighborhood? And part of what's happening in this process is as fear begins to define our existence, it's infecting the way we see everybody. And when it infects the way you see everyone, how could you divide a space with somebody who wants to kill you? But fear does not merely vilify anybody who is similar to your enemy. It doesn't only infect the way you view people who do not deserve to be viewed that way. The vast majority of Palestinians want to live at peace, live side by side with Israelis in peace and security. The vast majority of Palestinians do not want to harm my children or my grandchildren. And the vast majority of Israelis do not want to harm Palestinians and Palestinian children. But what fear does is it takes us one step further. Fear does not only cause us to infect everyone around us with a certain definition. Fear also begins to infect ourselves. Because when fear continues, not only does it cause you to vilify everyone around you, it also causes you to give up hope. The ability of fear to define not merely your reality as it is, but your reality as it will be is one of the gravest consequences and one of the greatest dangers of fear. If I'm frightened and I have evidence, my daughter's best friend is blown up in front of a toy store. Now how do you have hope if that is what could take place? If it's legitimate to stab and to maim civilians, on the basis of what do you have hope? The greatest casualty, if you want to understand the, the impasse that exists today in the Middle East, in particular with Israelis and Palestinians, and every Palestinian child and every Palestinian mother and father could tell you the same stories that I'm telling you and the same experiences that I have, they have as well. Is that we don't hope anymore. While we know that the obvious solution, as Abdullah said, the obvious solution is I'm not going to disappear and the Palestinians aren't all of a sudden going to want to be Jordanians. We're both here. And we know we have to divide this land. But we have no hope that it is possible. And when there is no hope that it's possible, what you stop doing is you stop even beginning to work for or invest in anything that will become part of the solution. I want to offer two paths that I believe that our communities, both Israelis and Palestinians, two, two concrete paths, two concrete actions that each one of our communities must do if we're going to find common ground and with that conclude. The first 
is that we have to accept each other's narrative of our catastrophe of the pain that we have experienced. With the formation of the State of Israel, both Jews and Palestinians experienced a Nakba. Nakba is Arabic for catastrophe. Palestinians experienced a Nakba because while the Jewish state is the fulfillment of my dream, it wasn't the fulfillment of their dream. I came home. But they were already home. And they don't yearn to be in my home. Without at all ascribing blame, just merely describing the reality, the experience of Palestinians is that the formation of the State of Israel was a Nakba for them. They would be very happy if reality would reverse itself. Now, I might say it wasn't my fault. I could say it was your fault, and you could say it was my fault. And that, by the way, is one of the most fruitful conversations you could engage in. <laughs> you started. Go try to win that one. Doesn't matter who started. The reality is, is that Palestinians experienced a Nakba. But at the same time, Jews experienced the Nakba. And ladies and gentlemen, the Nakba is not the Holocaust. I don't need people to accept the reality of the Holocaust. If you don't, shame on you. You don't interest me. If I'm still having a debate with you about the Holocaust, you're outside of the sphere of civilization from my perspective. And you're of no interest to me. But in, with the formation of the State of Israel, I also experienced the Nakba. And the Nakba that I experienced was the profound alienation of the nations around me and of Palestinian people of my right to my home. I came home. And when I came home, I caused the Nakba to Palestinians. But with the formation of the state and the declaration of perpetual war, against me and my people, I also experienced the Nakba. I experienced an alienation in my home. I experienced danger and threat in my home. The first thing, if we want to reach common ground, if we want to break this cycle of fear, is we have to begin to see each other, but not simply to see you, to see your pain, to hear your pain, if you feel heard, even if I don't resolve it, the mere fact that I could say to a Palestinian, I hear your pain. All of a sudden, you can stand. You can sit straight. Somebody sees me. If we could begin to hear each other's pain, we can give up a little bit on that fear. Stage one is that each one of us has to start telling the story of each other's Nakba. What is it that Israelis, Israeli Jews felt when as they accepted the partition plan, all the nations around declared holy war against us? What does that do to a people? And what does it do to a people who are living in their land, who all of a sudden lose in a conflict that they were not interested in, 
who are not seen by the world and who discover themselves in somebody else's dream, which for them is a nightmare. Just to say that begins the process of healing. But there is one more step, and this is particular um, with regard to what, what Abdullah said in his beautiful remarks about action. Not only do we be, have to begin to tell the story of each other's Nakba, we also have to unequivocally stop acting in such a way which undermines each other's hopes. If the deepest hope of the Palestinian and my hope for them is to be a free people living as sovereign in a sovereign state side by side with Israel, any action which undermines the fulfillment or the implementation of that dream has to cease immediately. It's not simply enough for me to declare my commitment to a Palestinian state. Anything that I do that undermines that possibility has to become forbidden as either a political position, let alone a political platform or political action. The primary issue here, and I don't believe that settlements are the single most significant hindrance to peace. Settlements, however, if I am committed to a two-state solution, if I continue to build settlements outside of the settlement blocks, and that's a little caveat that I don't have the time to, to talk about now, but just put it down and go study about it later. If I build set blocks, settle outside of the settlement blocks, then what I am basically saying to Palestinians is that when I declare my commitment to a two-state solution, I'm like Clinton, the president beforehand. Um, I'm, I'm smoking, but I'm not inhaling. I'm not, inha I'm not inhaling my ideology. How could I have a two-state, how could I yearn for Palestinians to live in their own independent sovereign state and to continue to build settlements outside of the settlement blocks. Any action that undermines your hope becomes forbidden. I have to hear your catastrophe. I have to hear your fears. And I have to begin to ensure that none of my actions undermine the fulfillment of your dream. The reverse is that Palestinians cannot speak a language of a commitment to peace and regularly and consistently idealize and embrace terror. Again, I don't care whether we talk about who started first, second, or third. If someone who commits suicide and blows up Israelis if his family is given a yearly stipend 10 to 100 times more than this person could have ever earned as a wage earner, if he's going to be celebrated, if he's going to have um, uh, parks and streets named after him, when I see that, I question your commitment. You can't have it both ways. 
We can talk about a two-state solution and build settlements outside of the settlement blocks. And we can talk about peace and at the same time embrace terror as a means to achieving it. We have much to be frightened of. The common ground, the goal is clear. There will, God willing, be one day a Jewish and a Palestinian state living side by side in peace and security, caring for each other, helping each other, living with each other. But in order to do that, we have to have the courage to defeat the fear. And to defeat that fear, we have to cease being the object which feeds that fear. Let's see each other. Let's hear each other. And let's let each other's greatest dreams be fulfilled. When we do that, common ground will not merely be an aspiration. It might, it might be become a reality. Thank you. If you have a question ready, pass it to the aisle. Somebody will come down and pick them up. But we're already getting them in uh, via the, the uh, texting me message. <clears throat> the first one, one of the concerns I hear from American Jews from time to time is that Palestinians don't really want a two-state solution. Rather, they want Palestine to be all of the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. As evidence, for example, the fact that many Palestinian schools use maps that do not show Israel. How would you respond to that concern? Is that addressed? Would you like to address that? Well, Rabbi Hartman already and beautifully uh, acknowledged that overwhelming majority, no one knows the exact number, but the willingness, willingness for two-state solution or accepting the legitimacy of the state of Israel Clearly, this person is talking factually and accurate. There are uh, ideological elements within the Palestinian leadership which is non-representative of its own people. There is a hot air rhetoric uh, among the Palestinian leadership where they just keep harping that river to the sea message and they are showing it in their maps and etc. But I can, I can easily do the, do the same and go to those settlements outside of the settlement blocks. And look at their maps. Look at their vision of Israel. Look at their vision of Temple Mount. In the old city, I see pictures where people are basically removing Aqsa and holy sites of Islam, and they are putting their imagination of the third temple that's been built there, right in the, right in the old city. Taking that and generalizing as the overwhelming majority's consensus is not only unfair, it also um, sort of, again, diminishes the kind of culture of hope that we are trying to promote here and elsewhere. Um, thank you. I, I, I want to I suggest an idea. I, I want to open up as a, a window to, to the way some of the negotiations are going on between Israelis and Palestinians. On the issue of settlements, Israelis, there is an Israeli position which argues that we have to continue building settlements because that's what puts pressure on Palestinians to actually feel that time is not on their side. And through settlements, it creates the incentive to a political solution. If we would stop 
expanding settlements, they would not have the incentive to, to embrace peace right now. Conversely, terror is an incentive that Palestinians have to induce Israelis to be interested in exploring peace. And each side says, I will give each, each one of these positions is part of the negotiating process. Now, well, that might make sense to politicians, but that's why you brought an imam and a rabbi here today. <laughs> because we understand people. It's not the way people work. There will be no political process if fear continues to dominate the reality which each one experiences. And so while it might be coherent to argue that there is a political coherency to keeping up the pressure, as long as each one of our actions activates the fear on the part of the other, regardless of whatever political ideology you might have, it will never become a reality. And so each one of us has to give up on what we believe is our most significant bargaining chip. It's not in, po in political negotiations you have bargaining chips. With people, you have to hear them. You have to create the confidence. You have to create the, their ability to trust you. And therefore, um, these types, the claims that, oh, we'll change the map, once there is Once a we get there. You'll never get there. Next question. South Africans now say that without the application of sanctions, apartheid would not have ended. Many of us believe that the BDS boycott divestment sanction campaign will lead to the end of Israeli human rights abuses. Why is this position automatically condemned as anti-Semitic? <laughs> <clears throat> is the question clear? Can you say, just say a little bit louder? Okay. Does everybody know what BDS is? <coughs> BDS who, boycott. Who here has never heard of BDS? Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Oh, quite a few people. Maybe you might want to give a context okay. to that question. Yeah. The, the BDS movement, which has been gaining strength uh, not only in America but all over, is a tactic that was used in South Africa and in some other political situations to put pressure on the, the one who was involved in the, in the injustice. The idea is to boycott the economic part of it, divest from stocks that support that country or that issue, whatever it is, and sanction uh, those kind of actions, uh, work against them. Summarized as BDS. <clears throat> so the question is, in South Africa, the South Africans say that it was the pressure that came through the BDS that finally led to change in South Africa. So why is it that when this is applied to Israel, it's called anti-Semitic? If anybody calls BDS categorically anti-Semitic, and if they are doing unintentional, that means they are uninformed and misinformed. Uh, but if they are doing it intentionally, that means they are doing such a huge dis uh, injustice to a more or less nonviolent movement uh, who is trying to engage in boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which is uh, in our country, especially in the United States, 
with the freedoms and civil liberties that we have are sacred values that people are ready to exercise any of these BDS as long as they are not violent. So categorically calling this an anti-Semitic will be, to, to my assessment, irresponsible. There are voices, individuals, organizations involved in BDS. Most of the resentments and anger based on legitimate uh, criticism that they are entitled to of the certain policies of the state of, state of Israel. There are certain human rights violations and there are certain suffering of the Palestinians both as well as uh, in the occupied territories and the refugees elsewhere. And uh, if they are only limiting their BDS engagement and wanting to exercise tough love with the Israeli government, uh, that's absolutely true. But it's also dishonest to say there are no anti-Semitic voices in BDS movement. There are certain individuals who identify this movement where they go beyond the legitimate line and crosses the line and become anti-Semitic by saying and doing things which is overt anti-Semitic. But because of these people to generalize and, and those anti-Semitic voices and elements and individuals within the BDS movement, I hope within the BDS it will be fought against and we should do others uh, everything we can to fight against these anti-Semitic hate-mongering, hateful, vengeful voices within the BDS movement. But because of them to penalize and put the entire movement into a target, I don't know. To me, it's unfair and wrong. Um, here, we disagree a little bit. Um, I don't believe that all BDS is anti-Semitic. Let me be clear. Um, not everybody engaged in boycott, divestment, and sanction is an anti-Semite. Many are. And I want to explain why the Jewish community feels that it is not a political, a mere political economic expression of choice, but in fact um, expresses something far more problematic, which we are profoundly disturbed by and frightened. To simplify the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, to Israeli oppression is not only alien to Israelis and Jews and most Americans' ex experience, but I think factually incorrect. This conflict that's been going on for 70 years plus could be reduced merely to some claim of some racist ideology on the part of Israelis. Really? That's it? There's no grounds? There's, it's, it's just been some occupation? It really is as simple as racist, oppressive um, regime in South Africa? Palestinians and the, and the Arabs have always embraced peace, kindness, and gentleness towards Jews and Israelis, and if we would just stop Everything would be just fine. We hear statements where people state and argue that everything would be fine in the Middle East if we would resolve the Palestine, if we would stop settlements and resolve the Palestinian conflict. Really? We're responsible for the Sunni Shiite wars? 
We're responsible. It's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict which is responsible for the 400,000 people who've been murdered in Syria alone over the last, what, three, four years? That's it? And all the terror in the world is only, comes down to this? Part of our frustration, it's not that BDS, by definition, needs to be motivated by anti-Semitism. It's not. Some of it is, but not all of it is. But there is a certain simplistic ascribing of blame to a far more complicated conflict that causes us to wonder why. Why is it that, that, that with all of the complexity and with all of the, piece of, the, of the political processes that we've gone through, and again, I don't want to get into a factual conversation because nobody listens to facts anyway. And we don't build our opinions on the basis of facts. We pick the facts that mirror our opinions. So I'm not going to shape anybody's opinion today. But you just have to open up any, just read a little bit. Watch a little bit to realize that it's a little more complicated. So when somebody comes and says, yes, I'm going to solve, there is one villain here, and very often more than that. This is also, we ask, who else are you engaged in BDS with? And then we have language where Israel is the evil empire. The greatest evil occurring today in the world is Israel oppression of Palestinians. The fact that a Palestinian is not allowed to be a citizen in Lebanon now for 70 years, it's not allowed to be a citizen in Lebanon. Oh, that's not, Lebanon's not a problem. We are. The evil, that smells of anti-Semitism. We, we've seen it. I've seen the vilification of the Jew. So when you become very simplistic with the solution, when you become simplistic with ascribing blame, when you lose complexity which is so self-evident, and you begin to vilify one side and one side only, many Jews wonder, or say, I've seen that before. I've seen it. And we get uncomfortable. BDS, I believe, is also a profoundly, if it's not anti-Semitic, it is a profoundly destructive movement. It's not that effective, by the way, and it's not growing. Uh, more people, it's getting more press, but its effectiveness is, is marginal. It's actually decreasing. Um, what BDS tells one side of a conflict is you don't have to do anything. We're going to put pressure on the other side to make their life so impossible. Just wait it out. I want to tell you if there's going to be any resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's going to come from each side realizing that they have to do a lot of work to change the way their society is acting, seeing, and treating the other. Each one of us has to do that. I, as an Israeli and as a Jew, am taking responsibility. Yes, as Abdullah said, I have sinned. There are things that I have to do to help bring about a Palestinian state. There are things that I have to do to help create the type of confidence 
and security that Palestinians deserve. I take that responsibility. But when you adopt BDS, what you communicate, and I'm telling you, I see it over and again, you communicate to the other side of a conflict, which I have to tell you, has equal responsibility. That they don't have it, and that they don't have to act. Time is on their side. And they just have to pass another resolution. And they have to again say, Zionism is racism. They have to control the narrative. And if they do so, Israel will lose. And remember, it's only 8 million people. It's a small country. And so the argument is, time is on our side. And so if you want, if you truly want to reach a common ground, it's about each side recognizing that they have sinned and they have work to do. BDS doesn't foster that. BDS undermines that. I don't, in principle, disagree with you. Um, in addition to what you just said, but I think there's a problem in equating any criticism to the state of Israel into anti-Semitism. And in this climate of BDS, we see an element which is incredibly problematic. I've been a college Muslim chaplain for 15 years, but I have never seen this level of polarization and sensitivity on college campuses. The response to BDS, a categorical rejection and calling it anti-Semitism, it shrinks the space between criticizing the state of Israel, which deserves a lot of criticism, which many of its policies are to me questionable and need every secular nation state. If you are not exceptionalizing it, if you are not only singling out Israel, if you are equally distributing that criticism of human rights violations to other places, look what my country has been doing to Kurds. Look what my country has done to Armenians. Like, are you able to do the similar criticism? As long as you don't exceptionalize, any secular nation state should be able to criticize. But in this climate, that space between the criticizing the state of Israel, its policies, without delegitimizing its existence, and the anti-Semitism, that space shrinks. You're, you're absolutely right, Abdullah. But <clears throat> I, um, I think there is a difference. I, as you know from my writing and the scene, I, I criticize Israel all the time. And I feel that criticism, in, in, in the Jewish tradition, you are you, cr criticizing somebody is one of the 613 commandments. It's not a joke. No, no, I'm being actually very serious. In our tradition, when you see somebody doing something wrong, you are obligated to criticize them. And it is actually an integral part of the commandment of love your neighbor as yourself. You love a neighbor if you see them by criticizing them. It's in Leviticus 19. You shall, you shall surely criticize your neighbor, you shall love them as yourself. That's the juxtaposition in, in Leviticus 19. In Jerusalem, they do this commandment really well. <laughs> we're, we're, like, we're very from, we're right. all... <laughs> My goodness. No, you actually, like, our, 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 our culture of, of, of mutual criticism is very, very deep. Very, very, very deep. Um, so I agree with you, Abdullah. We've got lots now, of questions. Can we move on? This is a big one. Let me just, just give me one, because this is a big one. It's about quality, not quantity. Um, I agree that when we create in the Jewish community a community in which criticism is impossible, 
we are undermining, of either side, we are undermining the moral stability of our positions, we are undermining our Israel to be a place that large or very diverse political positions could each find a, each find a home in. We are, we are doing harm to ourselves, and when we call all criticism anti-Semitic, we're being foolish. But there's a difference between criticism and putting yourself up as judge and jury in a conflict which is profoundly complex and trying to coerce one side and creating passivity on the other side and singling out one side as the great evil of the world. That goes to another place. That's not the same as criticism. That's not, there's criticism. BDS is not political criticism. It's an attempt to, to create a political reality um, in, I believe, much more simplistic terms than the reality um, actually deserves. And in all honesty, we are recording this, it'll be public. I am not a I am not BDS movement sweetheart because of the work that I do in Israel. You violate it BDS violates all the, time. the BDS, so as any Muslim majority country. Uh, but uh, I have been target of a lot of criticism. But I still, I think, if some people of all the conflicts choose to engage in Israeli-Palestinian conflict and horrified by certain policies of the state of Israel, if they don't cross the line of hate and anti-Semitism, they have absolutely every right to engage if they want to. Uh, but the culture of not tolerating any criticism of the state of Israel, you know, the, one of the biggest damage of such is it's alienating a lot of Jewish students. I see increasing number of uh, Jewish involvement, ideological as well as financial Jewish contribution to BDS is significant. On my campus, the, like many people who are involved in the, in the BDS moment, which is very small, but the ones involved are mostly Jewish. Jewish students or Jewish faculty, Israeli faculty involved in this. If you don't tolerate, even within your own communi community, any element of criticism, then you push people out, let alone the other side. Uh, well, this one is for Abdullah Antepli. You said there are other parts of the world that are even worse than West Bank and Gaza. Could you give examples? I lived in Myanmar for about five years. Um, if you look the kind of persecution, discrimination the Burmese Muslims are facing in Myanmar, um, the entire villages have been burned and gang raped. To go to from one village to another, you need a visa in that Rakhine state in the northwestern part of Myanmar. If you just call Rohingya Muslims and then look at their tragedy, in China, for the last three years, government is banning Ramadan. Can you imagine? Like in, there are parts of Xinjiang state, in one particular Muslim majority state in the West, Muslims are forced fed during the month of Ramadan to make sure they are not fasting. The religious practice has been outlawed. The Central Republic of Congo, in the last seven and a half years, lost its entire Muslim population. That there was an ethnic cleansing, an absolute genocide, where the entire country lost its 12% of its Muslim population. In Angola, Islam has been outlawed now, many people know. They're a teeny tiny Muslim community. Like, I can go on and on. We, uh, Baruch Hashem, Alhamdulillah, we don't lack in misery and problems in the Muslim world. Uh, yes, it's despicable. Yes, Palestinian suffering is absolutely real. I spent six weeks this summer in, uh, in Lebanon working in Palestinian refugee camps with a group of deep university students. It's a shame. It's absolutely a shame in 2016, after 70 years, 
those people have been still living in inhuman conditions where more than a dozen kids every year die because they are, get electrocuted because of the cables and the kind of uh, situation there. Um, but uh, if Israel, the formation of Israel caused this problem, can you still blame only Israel and its, uh, its role and its existence for the 70 years? Isn't some of this problem is self-inflicted and caused by its own leadership and the failure of the people in that region? We have to, we have to be honest. Next question, comment on how political leaders take advantage of the power of fear to modify vision. How can people recognize when this is happening? This person must not be watching Fox News at all. <laughs> it's, it's so easy. That's what's so, it's so, it's, because fear, um, you, we probably need a Darwin psychologist. Um, on, the, on, on how significant fear is for the survival of the species, how necessary it is, how easy it is to play on it and to activate it. Um, and once you, you just have to let it out and it spreads by itself. Um, unfortunately, for many politicians, the goal is to be elected. The goal is not to lead. And if that's your, if that's your goal, fear is a... Uh, is a very powerful tool. But if your goal as a leader is to serve your people and to bring them to a new future, then uh, you're not a leader. Okay, moving on. What about Iran, who benefits from conflict in Israel, Syria, and Iraq? What about it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it gets to the, the Sunni-Shia conflict. You might want to speak to that. Well, Iran. I said it many, many times publicly, and it doesn't make me very popular in certain circles. Um, the regime there, again, whatever we criticize with of so many evil policies of the Iranian regime and the government, it should not dehumanize the entire, entire Iranian society. It's, Islam could have never been Islam today without the 10,000-year-old, incredibly sophisticated, incredibly rich Iranian civilization. As a civilization, Muslims are indebted to Iranian civilization. And this really horrible regime today in Iran, who not only uh, reduces this 10,000 years of civilization into a horrible, destructive uh, machine, but also gives such a uh, horrible representation of what this country, its contribution to Muslim society, its beautiful Shia theology, Shia religion, Shia spirituality, that they, they have produced. Uh, Iranian government and its regime is unfortunately one of the most destructive forces in the Middle East. They are involved in supporting, aiding uh, terrorism and dividing countries. Um, it has no sympathy or any kind of love from me at all. Unequivocally condemn it in its, in its entire regime. It has been nothing but death and destruction to Iranian people as well as to the region as well. It's not defensive at all. But at the same time, to, to, uh, uh, to be against to any kind of engagement uh, which can, inshallah, open up the doors, uh, many of those conversations around the Iranian nuclear deal, I still support, personally, we are talking about politics today the whole time, Iranian nuclear regime, because all the other heavy-handed uh, beating, sanctioning, boycotting, and divestment, BDS people should take lessons 
BDS, and it was one of the uh, regretful, many people who are involved in BDS to Israel, uh, they are not as involved in BDS to, or they are not supporting sanctions to, sanctions to Iran. It's a very interesting dichotomy which questions people's uh, commitment and sincerity in this sense. I, am, I think the history and the engagement in the Middle East shows engagement, learning each other's pain, learning each other's history, and trying to undermine the dictators like the Iranian regime leaders through engaging with public diplomacy, engaging with its people, appealing the better side of that society, completely not dehumanizing them is the way to go. Here's a question to an imam and a rabbi that I think I can answer, but I'll give it to you anyway. If religion didn't exist, do you believe we would still have these problems? Absolutely. If you think religion is innately, inherently evil, and all the violence, death, and destruction is caused by uh, religious people only, look at the great wars, great quote unquote, all the problems and the genocides and the conflicts and the wars of the 20th century. Look, look to see if seculars, people who are a-religious, anti-religious are any better. Pol Pot in Cambodia killed two and a half million people in five years. About one third of them without single bullets. That means they've chopped people with machetes and, and, and he, was a, he was an anti-religious communist. Look what Stalin has done. Well, look what Mao has done. Look what Hitler has done. They were not church-going, peaceful, turn-the-other-cheek people. <laughs> they were not uh, holy jihadi, Allahu Akbar, yelling, uh, killing in the name of religion people. Violence is in us. It's innately, inherently human. Religion has a role in taming that violence if it is uh, appropriately and correctly applied. But religion can also be evil. Religion can also be a source that could reveal the worst of humanity, as we have seen in this conflict. You know, I have never seen religion, Islam, Christianity, uh, brushing their teeth or engage. Like, religion is what we do. Islam is what Muslims do. Christianity is what Christians do. Judaism is what Jews do. If we, if we hold on to those good elements in religion and reveal the best of those ideals, ethical, moral teachings, religion will be a good thing. If not, religion can be absolutely a source of death and destruction, but assigning the entire blame into religion itself is wrong, inaccurate, misleading, and unfair. I think there is no doubt that religion right now is serving to exacerbate the conflict rather than serve as a, as a resolution. But, in the, but to follow your instructions for brevity, I would just simply say, um, buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> I second that. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, the title of his book is Putting God Second. Putting God Second, for a practicing Muslim, Whenever I say the title of the book, I, I ask forgiveness inside in my, in my heart. <laughs> like I, but this is, the, the book is precisely, I have a small blurb at the back of the book, you will see. Only a faithful Jew, only a faithful Jew like Rabbi Hartman can say that and can do that. And this is one of the many, inshallah, God willing, Be'ezrat Hashem, uh, wonderful outcome of the interfaith in a partnership. The theological places that as a Muslim I cannot go, let the Jews go and do the work. And I will, and I will watch and benefit from that outcome. No doubt that some of the problems that we are facing is directly coming from the way we understand religion. 
Most of the violence, death and destruction is coming from the way we understand our concept of God, our understanding of Islam or Judaism and Christianity. And it requires us to reevaluate how we understand and more importantly implement our religion. I told Daniil when I first heard the title of the book, I says, don't you mean our concept of God should be put second? But then I read the book, and uh, I, if you don't like the title, read the book. I think it'll give you a different perspective. Another plug for you. Uh, here, let's move back to politics. Israel already gave up the land called Gaza and got more terrorism in return. How does this factor in? Um, it factors very significantly in the process of fear that is shaping Israeli politics. Um, I want a two-state solution. Right now, a short-term implementation of a of, I believe that, a, that an immediate implementation of a two-state solution will be the destruction of the State of Israel. Right now, I'm ready to sign a deal. Right now. And a majority of Israelis, at least in theory, were ready to sign a deal giving up 93% of Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. Um, Jerusalem was never fully resolved. It was, it wasn't, they can't admit it was, but let's say we, Jerusalem is not a security issue. The lines were drawn, it was clear. But right now, my fear is I could sign a treaty with Abu Mazen. I don't know if tomorrow Abu Mazen is going to be in power. Abu Mazen is now in the 12th year of his four year presidency. And he's such because free elections in the Palestinian society right now are untenable. He fears that he will lose to Hamas. Hamas in its charter wants to kill you. Doesn't want any Jews living in the Holy Triangle. We're not allowed to be there. Now I could sign a deal, but I have to live with the person who might come afterwards. Ah, you might tell me, when you're in power, then you become responsible. That's something nice to say when you're six to eight to 10,000 miles away. You want me to take that risk right now? From Ramallah, you could shut down my, my only international airport. You don't need Qassam rockets. You don't need Grad rockets, mortar shells. You could actually, with in, with a Kalashnikov, start shooting at planes which have to circle in order to land, to close down. You close down trade, you close down commerce, and you significantly impair the ability of the state of Israel to function as a normal country. I want a Palestinian state. I do. But I don't know how to live right now. We need the patience to implement a process of healing our people so that it wouldn't be conceivable or that Palestinians will understand that Hamas or perpetual war with Israel does not serve their interests. Right now, I'm not convinced. Right now, I just, I can't do it. I, I was for the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza. I was for it. And while the unilateral withdrawal from Gaza was not a peace treaty, the reality is, is that I could have expected the Palestinians to do something else. Right now, out of Gaza, we are now in a position. State of Israel is a very, very powerful country. We are. We have one of the 
for the five most powerful armies in the world. We're a very, very powerful country. Hamas cannot destroy Israel. They cannot. The only existential threat that we face right now is potentially from a nuclear Iran. But there is no Arab state that has the capacity to, um, to be victorious in the battlefield against Israel. Right now, there is none. Um, and that's one of the great successes of Zionism, a success that I, that I, that I give thanks to. Um, I love the fact that now I could protect myself. I could protect myself. I could live as a free people. It's a great thing that you take it for granted. I love the fact that now I have that ability. And I have the ability to defend myself and to watch out for myself. But my enemy, while not having the ability to destroy me, has the ability to terrorize my population and has the ability to shut down my economy. Now, they could do out of Gaza, um, most of Israel is controlled or is under the, um, the range of <coughs> missiles which come from Gaza, or three quarters of the country. So we built an iron dome. Technology from Israel, funding from the United States. The United States is now going to be using the iron dome as well. We now have an iron dome, which stops 90% of missiles. It's the first active functioning missile defense system. Necessity required it. We have that. But there is no iron dome for mortar shells. We could take out grads, we could take out kassams, we can't take out mortar shells. Our fear is that, I don't know if you know the map of Israel, but Israel is a very, very narrow country. To the length of the whole center of Israel is paralleled by the West Bank. Our fear is, is that an independent Palestinian state in, in the West Bank or in Judea and Samaria, not under Abu Mazen, but under somebody who might come tomorrow, will cause the destruction of the state. And so that is why Israelis are voting for Netanyahu. <clears throat> Israelis are voting for Netanyahu because the majority of Israelis, and it's not just the Likud, it includes labor, it includes all of the political parties, all of the Jewish political parties, are not for any dramatic activism on the peace front right now because the Arab world in general and the Palestinian world in particular is just too unstable. And when you add to that equation ISIS, we just, we can't, we don't, we don't know what the next, forget five years, we don't know what the next year is going to be like. And while you can make peace with Canada, it's very difficult to make peace, not with Palestine, with, 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 with a people who you don't know who their regime is going to be. That is the primary consequence of Gaza. And every single time, Hamas could draw Israel into war at will, at will. Because no society is going to allow a group of people to fire missiles at its civilian population. No country in the world. You could argue about the war in Gaza, whether we did everything correctly or not, fair enough. No country in the world is going to allow hundreds of missiles to go and be targeted against its civilian population. None will do that. And our fear is, is that the similar thing will happen in Judea and Samaria. And that's, part, that's where the fear is activating. So Gaza elevated the fear equation. What we need to do, that's why we have to, once we recognize that, we have to begin processes which increase that trust. Um, 
And I also believe, and this is something we haven't talked about, I do believe that the world has a significant role to play. Not in coercing a solution, because you can't coerce a solution. America, I think, has more or less learned that it cannot resolve political conflicts through force alone, nor could you dictate very complicated conflicts. But you can help. You can help by creating the infrastructure and the stability and the backing to ensure that political processes have the, have the economic and military stability that they need in order to give them a sufficient amount of time to take root. Um, that's what didn't happen in Gaza, and we have to learn from it to be very careful when we talk about um, Judea and Samaria. The issue of Gaza is one of the few that Rabbi Hartman and I, we don't necessarily fully agree and look eye to eye and necessarily see it in a similar way. But I want to go back to the question. That question uh, reminds me one of the issues that I wanted to discuss in my remarks, but I didn't get to find the time. One of the biggest hindrances in achieving a common ground is in this conflict or many conflicts similarly, there is an incredible amount of essentialism is taking place. For many people, unfortunately, this has become, this conflict has become an essential conflict between good and evil. And essentially, my side is good, and my side did everything they can to achieve peace, even did more than expected, but other side, for no reason, for no understandable logical reason, people choose, they were given equal opportunity to choose sending their children to school, having running water, indoor plumb, and having normal housing, but for no reason, seemingly, in that essentialism, they choose war, they choose conflict. I don't believe Israeli government has done everything it could to alleviate the suffering of the Gazan people. I don't think that withdrawal, and partially they turn into Gaza into an open air prison, and that human suffering has continued. That's why evil Hamas, terrorist organization like Hamas, is feeding itself from the Palestinian suffering, which is partially caused by the absolute blockage of the, of the Israeli government. To, to think that anybody, that's what I'm fighting within my own community. That's what I repeat to my children and students multiple times. Never believe that no society, if they are given equal opportunity between good and evil, for no reason collectively choose evil, death, and destruction. We have to believe in the innate good of all and every people. Uh, one last question, that actually a combination of oh, questions. Come on, I just warmed okay. up. <laughs> the question is, uh, what's the role of Christian Palestinians in this area? And a similar question, how do the various programs in Jerusalem run by churches and organizations that accompany children, work at checkpoints, do this have a positive impact on the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians? Briefly, please. <clears throat> what time do we have? Um, number one, there aren't many Christian Palestinians. Um, there aren't many. There are some, but it's not a large community. Um, there's a difference between Christian Palestinian Israelis and Christian Palestinians who live in the West Bank. Um, Christian Palestinian Israelis are on the education front and on the socioeconomic level at the top of Israeli society. Per capita, they make the highest salaries, their education is the highest, and they are an integral part of Israeli society um, and a very, very successful minority um, um, within Israeli society. Um, 
There is great potential for Christians in the Middle East to serve as a bridge. Um, I'm not sure they're yet doing so. Um, but there is at least, that, that could be a force for good. Um, because Christianity and Jews have moved in a completely different, this is not the Christianity and Judaism of our grandparents. I'm not sure, however, all of that message has been communicated to um, Christendom in the West Bank. I can't tell you that for sure, but I'll, I'm not going to comment on it. I just don't know. Um, in Israel, um, there is great, great opportunity and great affinity um, and possibility um, for the Christian community to be a bridge between Arabs and Jews. Vis-a-vis, -vis, the second part of your question, though, went beyond the, the local. You went to... Oh. Christian support groups that are working, for example, at checkpoints and doing uh, various kinds of social service activity. Um, anytime you, 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 you stand for goodness, I also feel that just like fear is contagious, goodness is contagious. And, um, and the challenge, and I'll, I'm going I'm to twist it a little bit. One of the challenges of, for the role of Christendom in the Middle East is, is what role you see yourself. Do you see yourself as the judge? Do you see yourself as deciding who's the victim and who's the, what's the opposite of victim? Victimizer. The winner. <laughs> the victimizer. Um, is your job to be that who is judge? Or is, if, when you get into that role, it's, um, it becomes less beneficial. One of the challenges, and here I'm going to speak about something much slightly, there are many, uh, so Christian charities, the more you alleviate harm, the more you alleviate pain, the more you alleviate um, hunger, God bless you. God bless you. There is, there is no downside to that. But there is, part of the challenge with Christianity's assessment or ability to see the state of Israel is that many Christians come to Israel and see it as the birthplace of Jesus. Many Christians know a tremendous amount about Judaism 2,000 years ago. That part of the transformation that's taken place between Jews and Christians is that there's been an embracing of the Jewishness of Jesus. But we Jews have progressed for 2,000 years. And there is not a lot that you know. There are dialogue groups where we talk about pluralism or anti-Semitism. But Christianity doesn't really know, by and large, Judaism. And we've come a long way. Many missions, Christian missions to Israel, come to see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I can't tell you how many divinity schools have missions, let's say two to three week missions, which goes something as follows. Um, they spend two weeks in Beit Lechem, in Bethlehem, and then they spend a week in the Holy Land, in Israel. Of the week in Israel, easily 80% of the time is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And maybe, sometimes they go, well, we've been here for three weeks, we need, we need a living, breathing Israeli to speak to. Someone who's actually not 2,000 years old. I'm here. Could you see a living Israeli? 
Could you see what Israeli Jews are trying to build? I think by and large, Christianity has yet to really see what a Jewish state means. And by the way, that applies equally to, to Christian Zionists. I am not a part of Christianity's war against Islam. Don't draft me to that. I'm not interested in it. And my victory is not your victory. I don't want to be a part of that. I am not at war with Islam. I have never been at war in Islam. If you and Islam have some aspiration of world dominance, don't get me involved in your, in your conflict. I don't think Christian Zionists see Israel either. We're a real country. We are the homeland of the Jewish people. Judaism, a Jewish state, is not a state of Judaism. Because Judaism is different than Christianity and Islam. A Jewish state is the home of the Jewish people. And a Jewish state is parallel to an Irish state and a Greek state. We've come home and we're trying to build there a sovereign state. Are we perfect? Far from it. Far from it. He who is, let them cast the first stone. We're far from perfect. We're trying to build there a country which is democratic, where Jewish ideals and Jewish values can be expressed in the public domain, in which all people, regardless of race and religion, have freedom and, and inalienable rights. We have a far way to go. Come, don't come to Israel to see the birthplace of Jesus alone. And what you do is you come and you see the plight of the Palestinians, and then you come and see the history. The his history. And what you haven't seen is you haven't seen the struggle of the Jewish people and their aspirations and their difficulties and their successes. And so there is a tremendous amount of love and respect which Christianity has towards Judaism, and it's remarkable. But in the, in, in the process of, of this dialogue and, and this common ground embracing, um, I don't believe much of Christianity yet has, has come to terms with and has an understanding of what Israel as a living reality is about. And, um, and I invite you to come see my home. Abdullah, do you want a short last statement? Our biggest problem is not terrorists, not crazies, not irresponsible politicians. But our biggest problem is overwhelming majority of Jews, Christians, and Muslims are lazy moderates. The forces who are trying to divide us small, but they are incredibly active. They are incredibly dedicated, motivated. I've been at Duke University for eight years. One particular unique, non-representative Christian community, every week they are sending me a literature with no fail, telling me that if I don't accept their version of Christianity, God will barbecue me in the dungeons of hell. <laughs> but what a dedication. What an incredible commitment. <laughs> what sincerity and what persistence. Until and unless the lazy, moderate Jews and Christians and Muslims shake their imagination, don't assign guilt to these fringe elements who are problematic in our tradition, until and unless we cannot motivate and mobilize these lazy, moderate majority and turn them into radical peacemakers, common ground creators, and bridge builders, we have no hope. Thank you, and God bless each and every one of you.
That was Abdullah Antepli and Daniil Hartman discussing the possibility of common ground between Israelis and Palestinians. For more information about their conversation, visit howensteincenter.org and gvsu.edu forward slash interfaith. We at the Howenstein Center would like to thank the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, its director Doug Kinchy, program manager Katie Gordon, and senior research fellow Kelly James Clark. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Also, I've got a Twitter now. Travis has been showing me the ropes on social media, and I'm getting the hang of it, maybe? I think so. You can follow me at Joe Hogan CGI. CGI is for Common Ground Initiative. I'll be tweeting not just about episodes of the podcast, but also about a variety of issues having to do with politics, culture, and common ground. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been another episode of Common Ground.